Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson. With me is Aaron Miller. This is the second of our episodes for the week. This one is our news roundup episode in which we take three items or themes from the news this week in tech and discuss those briefly. And it's be about a half hour discussion overall, I think. And our three topics today are, uh, first of all, the congressional action on privacy with regarding to with regards to ISPs protecting user data. Uh, and a separate story about that as well, which is the Electronic Frontier Foundation uh, criticizing Verizon for releasing an app and then basically walking back its criticism very quickly afterwards. So that's the first topic. Second is a set of changes that Twitter made, uh, a set of new features and, and feature tweaks from Twitter, including new way that at replies are presented and how that affects the character count for tweets and so on, as well as a couple of other changes. And then thirdly, New data on the U.S. music market from the Recording Industry Association of America, the RIAA, which suggests that streaming is now over half of uh, recorded music revenue for the year 2016. Uh, and there was also some other data that came out this week from a, an analytics firm about which streaming apps people are actually using in the U.S. So that was an interesting coincidence that those both landed in the last couple of days, and we'll talk about both of those together at the end. So those will be our three topics as a reminder, this is one of two episodes we now do each week. The first episode is our question of the week, and I recorded that on Wednesday on my own following the Samsung event in New York City, which I attended. And so if you haven't listened to that yet, I'm interested in uh, my take on the Samsung news. We won't be discussing that in this episode, but there's a deep dive on that in the other episode this week. So if you look up week 88's question of the week episode, you'll find that uh, as a deep dive on Samsung. So with that out of the way, we'll, we'll move on to these three news roundup topics. First off, uh, congressional action on privacy. And it, it's worth putting this one in context. And one of my biggest pet peeves with the way that this news has been covered over the last few weeks has been a ton of hyperbole about it. And, uh, and it's misplaced, frankly. And so it's worth diving into what's actually happened here. There is um, a lot of complexity here in the regulation. And so I'm going to try and simplify this as much as possible. But basically, the Federal Trade Commission, one of the big U.S. agencies, regulates privacy on the Internet. And it has all kinds of rules which apply to certain players. Um, and one of the challenges is when the FCC was putting in place net neutrality regulation a couple of years ago, they had to reclassify broadband ISPs uh, from one kind of category to a different kind of category in order to implement net neutrality. At the same time, that then took those ISPs out of the jurisdiction of the FTC and put them into the realm that's regulated by the FCC when it comes to privacy and that kind of thing. So that basically removed some regulations that applied previously to ISPs and, and left them unregulated in regard to certain areas within uh, privacy. Uh, what happened late last year was that the FCC proposed a set of rules that would essentially put back some of the oversight that had been there before this reclassification um, and actually went further than what the FTC previously did. So in other words, ISPs, broadband ISPs, including this is cable companies and telcos principally here in the US, they had been regulated in a certain way. Uh, they were reclassified under the FCC's attempt to institute net neutrality. As a result, certain regulations were removed, and then late last year, the FCC proposed putting in place a whole new set of more onerous privacy requirements. And they never actually went into effect because that would have gone into effect at the end of last year. And when Trump was elected, he basically asked every federal agency to hold off on any new regulations they were about to implement. So they got put on hold. 
And then what this congressional action did was basically say the FCC can't put in place rules like this. Um, and so basically, you know, those already weren't going into effect, but then Congress basically said, and they never will go into effect, basically. And so that's what's actually happened. So if you look at what the case was since 2015 when that reclassification happened, and you look at the situation today, it is identical. There is no difference in the way these players were regulated in 2015 and 2016 from the way they're regulated today. Nothing has changed. It did change in 2015 when the FCC decided to reclassify the ISPs, but nothing's changed since then. So for all the hyperbole about suddenly carriers being able to sell your data and so on, no. Whatever they can do today, they were able to do two years ago. And if they didn't do it then, there's no real reason to believe they're going to start doing it now. So that's kind of the explainer, if you like, here at the background for all of this. Nevertheless, we've all seen lots of articles in the past couple of weeks talking about privacy ending and so on. And then there was this article from the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which is a, a privacy-minded consumer rights group that put out an article today about this mobile app Verizon is testing on one obscure LG smartphone which basically uh, is, it's an opt-in app. Users can decide to use it or not, basically, and it, it collects data about which other apps you're using and makes recommendations about which other apps you might want to use and so on and so forth, and collects data that could be used to target advertising and that kind of thing. Um, and so the EFF kind of blew up about this and said this is you know happening because of these, this law was passed and all the rest of it and and so on and so forth. And basically Verizon said, hey, you're totally misunderstanding what this app does. And the EFF basically has stricken out the entire post that they published about this. The only thing that's still there unstricken out is the new paragraph at the beginning saying, this is a statement from Verizon and basically we messed up here. But it's that kind of hyperbole, this sort of gut, sort of gut reaction to this stuff without really looking at the facts that is characterized so much of the coverage of this stuff. Um, and the reality is nobody sells people's browsing data. You know, Google and other companies certainly collect that stuff today. They certainly do use it to target advertising, but literally nobody today takes your browsing data and sells it because they know if you if they did that, you would never use their browser again. So to the extent that quote unquote anybody is selling your data, what they're really doing is selling the right to target you with advertising. They don't tell anybody who you are. They don't tell anybody exactly who they've served up ads to or anything like that. So to the extent that telcos might do any of this stuff, they would do the same stuff that Google and other companies already do, Facebook and, and all the rest of the ad-based online companies already do. That's really what's potentially going to happen now. In the case of Verizon, they own AOL, they're buying Yahoo, they clearly intend to do some of that stuff. But this isn't something new and different. And the extent that people have been claiming that you'd be able to buy somebody's browsing history and they're going to go out and buy the browsing history of Republican members of Congress once this bill passed, because suddenly that was supposed to enable that, it's just not possible. There is nobody out there that's doing that or is going to do that. So anyway, rant over from me. <laughs> but, um, but I think it's a really important context that's been missed here. And I've, I've written about this a couple of times on tech narratives in the last few weeks as this whole story has unfolded. But Aaron, I know you had a slightly different angle on this that you wanted to talk about. So I'll stop talking at this point and let you talk about it a bit. Well, I, you know, I think the, the details are, it's unreasonable to expect every time that the details won't be lost on the voters, the citizens, the consumers, whatever we're going to call them, <clears throat> because there's a lot of technical detail in how these regulations work, what power the FCC had that now it no longer has. Um, and there are, there, there are still a lot of even people directly in the know on this that are concerned about what this opens the doors to. And maybe it is, a, you know, 
the Supreme Court had a phrase for this, for the slippery slope of this. They called it a parade of horribles. Mm-hmm. And it was this idea, you know, that you just have one terrible thing after another that this opens the door to. And and uh, they've used that in context of other freedoms. And, you know, the idea that ISPs now have this freedom, it, you know, we have to wait to see. And it's good to be cautious and wait and see, you know, if the parade of horribles ever reveals itself before we make any final judgments. But that said, I mean, Tom Wheeler, you know, who is the most recent chair of the FCC and who was a big proponent for limitations in this area, he did an op-ed in the New York Times, you know, essentially saying that the, that the and, and it was mostly the Republican members of Congress. In fact, it was a very bipartisan, it was a very partisan divided vote. Um, you know, he came out, Bruce Schneier, who's, uh, you know, a, a, a pretty well-known specialist in security issues generally came out and, and he criticized it as well. Again, but they're criticizing sort of what could happen, not what actually will happen. And I think you make a good point that there are market forces at play that would make that less likely. I, I think the problem here <clears throat> is that uh, Congress and this decision seem to be pretty um, uh, naive about the optics of it. Yeah, I, I think we're in a, we're in such a heightened phase of of history right now where i should say a heightened uh tension around security and privacy Mm -hmm. at this point in in american history that it's it's kind of insane for whatever small benefit whatever benefit is going to the small lobby that pushes through i say relatively small lobby compared to you know voters nationwide it just seems like a crazy issue to take up because of the mm-hmm. optics. I, I mean, it, you know, no matter how you try to explain this, you're always going to have people who misunderstand it and just see it as as, as Congress selling off personal data to big political donors. Right. A- and it's a, it's a crazy thing to take up c- compared to the benefit it's going to produce for the companies that are mm-hmm. in this small lobby pushing it. I yeah. just don't get that. It, it, it's, it's more so than ever. And, <clears throat> and I, I don't understand why that was a good idea mm-hmm. for any reason um, right. right now. And it'll be interesting to see what happens because, you know, sometimes big political movements are built on misunderstandings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. and but, but you know, often even when that happens, they, they can end up with good outcomes. And I wonder if that's going to be the case in this situation. I, mm-hmm. the, the, there's certainly a, a, a much more heightened attention to privacy around all this. And people have found creative ways to exploit it. And I, I, so this week, uh, James Comey, who is who last year around this time was Apple's nemesis in the privacy issue because he was pushing for Apple to unlock an iPhone that was used by a <clears throat> in a terrorist attack in the United States by a terrorist. And <clears throat> the FBI couldn't get data off of this phone because of the way it was locked and wanted Apple to essentially build them a, a backdoor tool. And Apple consistently refused this request. And and uh, the FBI eventually backed down rather than pick a legal fight that they might not win. Well, anyway, James Comey was sort of the villain to Apple's hero in that story this time last year. He's sort of stepped back a little bit from that message that these spaces ought, you know, that we shouldn't have encryption in our communications, at least not encryption that the FBI or that law enforcement can't break. Um, it, so this week, James Comey made an offhand comment about him, about him keeping a Twitter account that uh, is is on the down low, right? It's not it's not obviously tied to his identity. Well, 
a very enterprising author at uh, at Gizmodo, um, Ashley Feinberg, went and found it <laughs> and using some pretty creative investigative journalism. And if you haven't read this article yet, you need to, and we'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, she went and found his Twitter account. And, uh, and, and I think the idea is, was to bring heat on James Comey about the privacy thing. I think you're going to see more and more of that happening for elected officials, not just appointed ones like Comey. I think you're going to see con- members of Congress, for example, who are going to become specialized targets over privacy issues to really, you know, by a, by a handful of really active people who care a lot about this issue. And those stories carry weight. And and <clears throat> I think these sort of PR moments are going to continue to make elected officials look bad if they're not actively talking in ways that say that they want to protect their voters' privacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does seem an odd, odd thing to kind of fight for, except I guess <clears throat> the, the two things that sort of have been needed to justify it. One is this is obviously part of you know, what's presumably going to be a very wide set of attempts to deregulate different industries. And this is obviously one of the things that Trump campaigned on, and it's something that I think a lot of supporters are expecting to see a lot of action on. And it's frankly one of the easiest things to do because it's a matter of simply repealing various laws and guidelines and so on that are in place. And, you know, regardless of how you feel about that, this is at least consistent with this idea of deregulation. And this was a specific uh, element of regulation that, hadn't even gone into effect yet and was very easy to sort of overturn. So that was one justification. Again, whether you believe in that cause or not, this, that was one of the ways it was justified, was this is regulation that's not needed and these companies already abide by all kinds of privacy rules and so on. Um, the other one was that because um, these companies are now regulated by the FCC rather than the FTC, they're subject to different regulations, and Google and others actually have a lighter regulation than the rules the FCC was trying to pass. In other words, the companies that really see a lot of our online activity very directly because they provide the search engines and the browsers and everything else are regulated less tightly in this area than the ISPs were going to be. And there, there are different arguments on that point. But the point here was about trying to get to consistency. The problem is all this really happened is the FCC side of this has been removed. This doesn't actually get us to consistency. You still need a further step to, to bring those regulations in line. So it hasn't actually happened yet. But that was the other way this was justified. But to your point, the optics are just terrible, both for the carriers and for the members of Congress that supported this. It's very hard to spin as anything other than reducing regulations on privacy, which you know, almost no normal voter would say, that seems like a good idea. Um, you know, Once explained to them and so on, as I've kind of tried to do today, you might feel slightly differently about it. And if you're broadly sort of a deregulatory sort, a small government type person, then you might at least agree in general principle but yeah, it's, it seems a very odd thing. Uh, and the carriers have basically done very little until today, and it's Friday now, after all these votes have happened. Now the carriers are finally coming out and saying, this is what we actually intend. We're not going to sell any data, et cetera, et cetera. But there was none of that during all the big debate about this stuff. It's all happening afterwards, which is particularly funny. Yeah, well, and we do need to, I mean, the difference between Google and a carrier, and I think we have to acknowledge this, is that I can use a different search engine than Google. But if I live in a neighborhood where really the only viable ISP is Comcast, mm-hmm. you know, I don't have the benefit of being able to pick competition where I feel like my privacy right. interests are more protected. The, yeah. the you know, the carriers have have, you know, oligopolies, if not monopolies in a lot of places. And mm-hmm. uh 
And, and I think this extra power to them, even if it brings them on par with Google, they're, they're ahead of Google because they, mm -hmm. Google doesn't see everything that goes mm -hmm. through your web browser. They, well, depending on which browser you use, I guess. Yeah, if you use but, Chrome, they do, and I guess <laughs> right. that's the point. Right? Yeah, but the, but the point is, is like if, but, but, it, but Comcast will see every bit, you know, that flashes right. over their, uh, you know, yeah. over your modem. So Yeah, and again, you can use VPNs and various things to, to block that, but most people aren't ever going to do that. So, nope. so yeah, yeah, I mean, this is a complex thing we could keep talking about, but uh, but interesting to see the coverage and, and some, some broader implications, as Aaron's pointed out as well. Well, let's move on to the second thing that we're going to cover today. And this is a variety of changes from Twitter to its product. Um, three things specifically this week. One is, and this is the one that got most of the attention this week, it's changed to the way that at replies are presented on Twitter. So typically when you reply to somebody on Twitter, the tweet starts with at and then their username. If you start having a conversation with several people at once, it will have at username, at username, et cetera, et cetera. Each of those ats and usernames uh, eats into the 140 character limit. And as soon as you start having a conversation with five or six people, there's very little room left to actually say anything. Uh, and Twitter's promised to fix this since May last year. They kind of announced how they were planning to do it. They've uh, tweaked it ever so slightly, the approach that they were taking, but it's basically stayed the same ever since. And what they've done is basically remove the those usernames and instead now just above a tweet, it says in reply to, and then lists the people that are being replied to freeing up the 140 characters entirely for content. Um, there's been a backlash against that. People feel that's a lot less transparent. It's a lot less obvious that something is a reply now because it's often very small sort of gray type above that says it's in reply to somebody. So there's a loss of context and so on. Uh, for power users, the at reply thing is at least very familiar. You know what's going on and this is now a new thing they have to get used to. Uh, Twitter's argument from the beginning has been this is sort of syntax. This is stuff that people who are new to Twitter find confusing. They don't really know what's going on here, and it's frustrating as well from a content perspective. And the new method is actually clearer, more transparent, and frees up space. So that's one big change that was discussed a lot. Two other smaller changes. One was about direct messages on Twitter. If you have open direct messages, in other words, if you have checked a box that says anybody can message you, uh, and if somebody who you don't follow messages you, you now will get a little interstitial screen that will say somebody has messaged you, do you really want to see this message? It could be offensive or whatever. And so it, it's a small protection against harassment or unpleasant content. And then the third one uh, was that the default avatar on Twitter for several years now has been an egg. And uh, today that changed to this sort of blobby outline of a person that's sort of androgynous and and very vague sort of outline of a person. And, and this seems to be a response to the fact that egg avatars have, have become associated with a lot of the trolling and other unpleasant activity that happens on Twitter. And as Twitter's cracking down on abuse and harassment, finally over the last couple of months, they feel this is the time to try to revamp that avatar and the sort of associations that people have with it. So those are the three big changes. Um, Aaron, any thoughts on any of these? Um, I don't think the blobby thing, uh, the person thing versus the egg thing is going to make any difference. I, although I still think it was smart to do in the sense that it it like it separates egg avatars from their brand, right? Mm -hmm. Because that was the thing is they thought the egg would be cute because it ties into the Twitter brand. And, right. And, and now a blobby person won't be obviously a Twitter thing where mm -hmm. when you saw an egg, you thought of an Internet troll and, and Twitter at the same time. Um, mm -hmm. So I think people that don't have custom avatars are still going to have an instinctual sort of gut reaction that they're a troll. Mm -hmm. um, but 
I think the the larger point here is that it's interesting to see Twitter pushing out so many feature updates in such a short span of time. Yeah. Um, even just in the last couple of days. Uh, and I hope what this means is they're going to be making more frequent changes to the service just to try stuff out. And when you think of the frequency with which Facebook and, and Instagram and Snapchat are pushing out new features, it's, it's a blur. And stuff sort of mm-hmm. comes and goes yeah. and ideas that are good stick and ideas that don't just sort of disappear in an update mm-hmm. at some point. Um, but uh, Twitter, on the other hand, has been pretty glacial yeah. Um, by any standard in the way that they've approached their feature set. And so, mm-hmm. I don't know, I, I hope what this means is there'll be a lot more changes. The one, the one thing that holds me back from being really excited about this hope is that, um, you know, I use Tweetbot like a lot of people, mm-hmm. and it's a lot harder for third-party Twitter clients to keep up because um, Twitter isn't super forthcoming with its APIs. And, and plus, you know, you just... They, these developers don't get any lead time on any of these features. Right, right, yes. And we're, so we're not seeing this stuff yet in the Tweetbot app. Right. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I mentioned that the at reply change was actually announced in May of last year. So it's taken 10 months to implement something which seems to have changed very, very little in concept in the meantime. And it's, it's a bit like the algorithmic timeline, which ended up being the while you were away feature um, you know, Twitter announces this stuff and then there's so much backlash around it that it really seems to think very, very hard before it actually pushes the button on this stuff. And yet that just means that they seem slow, to your point. Like they seem like they just can't iterate and innovate anywhere near as quickly as others. And, you know, this week we also saw, you know, Facebook launched stories, they launched a causes um, feature where you can raise money for various things. You know, the, uh, Snapchat's just launched searching for stories. Uh, you know, almost every week Facebook and Snapchat are launching some new thing. And to your point, Twitter really doesn't seem to be doing that. And even though we've had this cluster of things this week, um, you know, they're still rarer. Um, and uh, they do seem to be moving very slowly on some of this stuff. Um, on the egg avatar thing specifically, I agree with you. You know, in and of itself, it does very little. I mean, there may be some emotional association with the egg avatar that there isn't now with this new avatar and that may help a little bit i think what twitter's really doing here is saying hey we're dealing with harassment and abuse now so this is the time to make this change because as things get better people will no longer associate the anonymous avatar with trolling and abuse and so on the problem is they've just barely implemented a lot of that stuff no doubt there's still more to come i think they would be much better off waiting a few more months until there was a real sign that things had improved dramatically and then making the change. Because then you would have made a clean break with the past where eggs were associated with that bad stuff in the past. These new avatars now wouldn't be. Uh, it just feels too early to make that change, even though the logic is fairly sound in principle. It just feels too early. Well, and I think of Twitter, I, I thought you made a good point about Twitter sort of being gun-shy because of complaints by users. Because they do have a very, it's a small core of users that are, mm-hmm power users on Twitter driving most of the content. Right. Uh, that said, the infrequency of the updates just um, magnifies those complaints. Right. If you were coming out more frequently and you're just sort of regularly tinkering, mm-hmm. people would stop complaining because they would get tired of complaining. And they right. would just sort of come to terms that this is this is what it's about. Mm-hmm. The, the, the reality is that that's the only way the service can improve. It can't stay static. Um or, or move as slowly as it does and mm-hmm. meet users' needs because 
users' needs are going to continue to change in the years to come. Right. And needs is a funny word for it, but but the, the idea that so many young people moved away from Twitter to Snap because Snap sort of had a better pulse on what uh, on what younger users would want is is the exact problem that Twitter is going to continue to have. Mm-hmm. There are going to be user yeah. groups that somebody else will figure out better what a user group wants, and they'll do it because Twitter's moving too slow and Twitter is not going to grow. Um, they, you know, I, what I wish is I wish they would just, I, I honestly think Twitter would benefit from a major, major revamp built on the core original idea of microblogging. Um, I mean, that, that was the original concept was microblogging. And what they soon realized is that it's also a really great conversational tool. And that's what drives mm-hmm. a lot of Twitter traffic now. Yeah. Um, they need to pay attention to those two things as separate and not the same. Like, like the microblogging tool and the conversational tool don't have to be the exact same thing. Right. And I think there are ways they could be thoughtful about separating those so that mm. the thing that is an original message, because there are some Twitter users I just stopped following because the conversational part of what they did was not as interesting to me as the very rare microblogging piece of mm. what they did. And so there's just too much noise to signal for me to right. be to to have it worth filling up my Twitter feed. Mm. And I think if Twitter just thought more deliberately about how the microblogging part of Twitter and the conversational part of Twitter, they don't have to be the same thing. Mm. That's I mean I mean this whole at reply like fix or quote unquote fix right that now a bunch of people are complaining about. Right. is an example of this problem because they were using the exact same tool for microblogging as they were for conversations. Mm-hmm. And then that's where the at thing came in. And and like you said, it's confusing to new users. And anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to rant a little bit. But <laughs> I, I, I think they just they need to recognize that there is a microblogging part of Twitter that yep. then spins off into conversations. Mm-hmm. And there's absolutely no reason they need to be the exact same tool. Right. Yeah. No, agreed. Agreed. Certainly, certainly scope for a lot more innovation, a lot faster iteration and everything else, I think, with Twitter. Uh, well, let's move on to our third news roundup topic, and this is about streaming music. And again, uh, the Recording Industry Association of America, which is the sort of industry body here in the U.S., released its annual uh, revenue numbers for 2016. And uh, there was this massive jump in the percentage of revenue uh, that came from streaming services. Uh, it went from, I think, 34% in 2015 to 51 so a majority in 2016. So this massive jump, and it's about a billion and a half in revenue uh, between those two numbers, so the 2015 number and the 2016 number. So a big jump in overall streaming revenue and, and streaming as a percentage of the total. The other numbers that came out this week were some numbers from Verto Analytics that were quite widely reported on, which suggested that Apple Music was sort of, sort of leading, leading the uh, music streaming market in the US. And... They claimed there were nearly 41 million monthly unique users in February on mobile devices for Apple Music, and that was bigger than uh, Pandora, which was second with 32.6 million, and Spotify, which was third with 30.4 million uh, monthly unique users. Um, The RIA numbers are interesting. I mean, this is a very rapid jump, and obviously it's hard to separate this from Apple Music, which launched about a year and a half ago, but really only started generating revenue, revenue in the last quarter of 2015. So um, 2016 was really the first full year. Uh, but, you know, Apple Music probably grossed around a billion and a half dollars globally. So if you were looking at just the U.S. cut, 
and then looking at the net cut that the music industry actually received, it would obviously be quite a lot less than that one and a half billion. So even though Apple Music's a big contributor to that growth, it's clearly not all of it. And uh, Spotify and so on will be part of that picture as well. But, you know, streaming really is taking over. And within that streaming, it's very important to note that it's almost all paid streaming. So in terms of the actual revenue generation, even though the numbers of users are much smaller, almost all of that revenue and the revenue increase are coming from paid streaming services like Apple Music, like Spotify's paid tier, like Tidal, uh, and not from ad-supported streaming, so Spotify's free tier and YouTube and so on. So, Aaron, any thoughts on all of this stuff? Uh, I, I, I'm excited that, that streaming is growing because I'm a streaming customer now, which is funny because I did the, the free trial on Apple Music when it first came out and it was that June of 2015. Mm-hmm. We tried it for three months and... I don't know. I guess it wasn't compelling enough then, and and then you know what it was. It was an it was an Apple Music exclusive. It was, I think they had the. Or maybe it wasn't. No, I think I can't remember if the Radiohead album that came out last year was an exclusive or not. But I remember thinking to myself, I'm probably going to binge listen to this, and so I'm just going to pay for streaming for a month and see what comes of it. And then it was the second time around that my wife fell in love with it. And was really happy and excited that we had streaming and uh, like a streaming music account. So I'm glad to see that it moved that it's moving in a good direction. the The Apple Mobile thing was interesting to me because there was you know there's been an argument floating around on the internet that Apple is winning on mobile as though that's a sign that they're going to be winning the future of streaming music. I think that's true. I'm not convinced it's because of Apple's positioning it on mobile is better than anybody else's um, because that seems like it's not a hard thing to change. Spotify could mimic Apple's approach exactly except for the Siri integration. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, yeah, so I, I you know, I, um, I just think there's so much we still don't know because it's still a relatively small number of people that are actually using these services. Mm-hmm. But I'm not all that surprised that they're growing. Yeah, yeah. The growth isn't a, a surprise, as I say. This Virtu da- Virto data was it was a bit funny because I think they're treating all... It's, it's app analytics, so it's basically what apps are people using. And I think they're treating the Apple Music app as Apple Music. And that's not really correct because obviously the Music app on iOS is also where you access your iTunes library and, and iTunes radio and all the rest of it. So all that usage isn't Apple Music usage. It's it's music usage through Apple's official app, which includes a number of different ways to listen to music. And so I think, you know, they talk about 41 million monthly unique users in the US alone, whereas, you know, Apple's latest numbers are somewhere around 20 million Apple Music paid subscribers globally. So the numbers just don't make sense. And they have some explanation about free trials, but that clearly isn't the explanation. You can't have twice as many users in one country as you can globally based on free trials alone. So as I say, I think the issue is um, that it's including a lot of that kind of iTunes style listening as well. But Apple Music clearly is doing very well and US will be one of those markets where it's doing particularly well because Apple's strong here. Uh, Spotify does very well globally, you know, obviously comes from Europe in the first place and has always done better there, came to the US later than some other services. So in some ways, it's not surprising that Apple Music would would over-index here in the US. But I think the actual numbers in these reports are a bit fishy, to say the least. Yeah, I do think Spotify still has a much harder row to hoe in the long run. Um, 
and, and that has mostly to do with the free tier. Right. And I wonder how long that's going to be sustainable. Um, and the, then the problem, if they move away from the free tier, is the discoverability. And that's an mm-hmm. advantage that Apple has, at least on iOS. Yeah. Well, and I guess I should include Android, but they're kind of in the same boat as Spotify on, on that mm-hmm. platform. Yeah. There's, not, there's not a discoverability benefit for Spotify on mobile platforms. Um, especially because the mobile, at least the the phone version of Spotify, they don't really have the full free tier. I mean, you can only play artists or albums or genres on a shuffle mode. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not a great user experience. You know, right. if on a different platform I can get just the free streaming with ads. Mm-hmm. But then, like I was saying, I'm not sure how sustainable that free tier is going to be yeah. in the long run. Yeah, and the bigger issue for Spotify is just whether they make money from it. I mean, whether Apple exactly. makes money or not is debatable, but at least they have a big business to fund it. Right. Um, Spotify's only business is streaming music, so if they can't make money at it long term, A, that makes their IPO difficult, but obviously they're not sustainable long term either. And so you've seen some recent wiggle room in their negotiations with the labels on perhaps putting some exclusives into the paid tier that aren't in the free tier and basically expanding that gap between the free and paid tiers to make it more attractive, to push people in that direction and perhaps then paying a, a lower cut to the labels in return for that. Um, but yeah, they, something has to change there, even if they're, they're the world leader in, in paid streaming by subscriber numbers, but you know, certainly not making money at it yet. And, and so that's the biggest challenge they still face. This is exactly why I still think that Spotify is going to be an acquisition someday. Yeah. And I don't know who it'll be. I, I doubt yeah. it'll be Google. But I can mm. picture it being either Microsoft or Amazon. Yeah, yeah, it's certainly so. possible. All right, well, let's wrap up the discussion there. As usual, we will have links to uh, the various stories that we've talked about. In, in many cases, those will be links to stories that I've done on tech narratives. Uh, in other cases where we've referred to other stuff, we'll link to that directly. Um, but thank you for listening. It's the second week that we're doing this sort of split model. We, again, welcome your feedback. Uh, we did get one piece of, or a couple of pieces of feedback on the weekly pick, and we forgot to talk about this up front, but uh, uh, there were a couple of requests that we bring that back, so we don't want to do that today, but might do that next week if we continue to get feedback to that effect, but give us feedback on any aspect of the podcast, uh, what you'd like to see more of, less of, something different, and uh, we'll do our best to take that into account and hopefully continue to improve the podcast, both both episodes and everything that we do here. So thanks for listening, we appreciate it, and we look forward to being with you again next week. Bye-bye.